0: So the big question is this, how do investors like us get access to the ideas, information, and most importantly, the right people that give us the tools and information we need to make informed and educated decisions to have success? That is the question, and this podcast will give us the answers. This is Mark Moss, your host. Let's get this started. Welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors Podcast. Today I am joined by Matt Odell. He is a Bitcoin privacy advocate. He's the co host of the Tales from the Crypt podcast. And we get into some really good topics today. We talk about privacy, talk about our privacy, why it's important, how it's under attack. We talk about, you know, the state of people maybe not really caring, uh, the pessimistic view, but also the optimistic view of how I think technology could actually help that. We get into Bitcoin not being as private as people think, but really being anonymous, how it's being used against us and what we can do about it. We get into some tools and tactics and strategies that you can do every single day to not only increase your privacy and sovereignty, but really to benefit the The entire community overall. It's a great podcast. It was one uh, that I was really looking forward to doing for quite a while. I'm glad we were able to do it. So let's just go ahead and jump right in. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Market Disruptors podcast. Today we are joined by Matt Odell. Uh, He speaks a lot about Bitcoin and privacy. He's the co-host of Tales from the Crypt podcast, which is a great podcast I listen to all the time. You guys should check it out if you're not already. Uh, but he talks a lot about privacy. He's really caught my eye, and I wanted to talk more about that for you guys today. So, uh, welcome, Matt. Uh, happy to be here, Mark. All right, good. So, um, yeah, so these are just really important topics. You know, with, with Bitcoin, there's so many different topics you can get into, and in, in privacy, our erosion of privacy, and, and how Bitcoin can help solve that is definitely a big piece I want to bring awareness to. Um, I, there's a lot we can talk about there. Before we get too deep in, uh, just for anybody who doesn't already know who you are, I want to just give us like a little background who you are, and then how you got here, what you're doing in the space.
1: Yeah. So, um, I mean, I, the, the easiest way to describe myself is I'm just a Bitcoiner. Uh, you know, I fell into the Bitcoin rabbit hole, uh, six years ago and I haven't looked back. Bitcoin is just completely, uh, absorbed, uh, all my thought processes. My whole life is absorbed by Bitcoin. Um, so I like quickly found a place like in the in the educational realm of Bitcoin, trying to sort through all the bullshit that we see. Um, and uh, I found Marty. So we do t- Tales from the Crypt. We do it once a week. We do a nice recap show. Um, I also created a tool for it's a dead man switch called FinalMessage.io, um, and which is it, it uses Bitcoin as the, as the payments uh, and the payments level so that you can pay without giving me any kind of identifying information. Um, and I, you know, I work a nice Fiat job that I don't talk about that, uh, helps me stack sats because I I don't have to pay attention to the price. Perfect. Um,
0: yeah, I think it was, uh, i have seen a few people talking about it, but I think Francis Poulard is the first one I saw. We talked about kind of like um, how thinking about Bitcoin changes like even just the way that you think, right? It changes almost maybe your reality or whatever. So you said that uh, your thought processes have been absorbed. Uh, would you say that it changes the way you think? Do you think that's true?
1: Oh, yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I consider myself a realist and I was very pessimistic when I was younger. Um, I didn't really see like a, a solid way out for, for like the house of cards that has been built over the last 40, 50 years. Um, and you know I, I, I guess you can see, you see it a lot in my generation they that that almost feels like a lost generation, and Bitcoin really turned that on its head. It gave me hope um, that, that there's improvements that can be made that, that we can actually do something that, that each of us has the ability to, to change. Um, how this world functions Uh, and then on top of that I when it clicked for me I was like I just need to like my number one goal is just to get as much Bitcoin as possible Uh, so and I I also come from the uh, you know my dad told me at a very young age that like you shouldn't be investing in things that you don't understand so when I all that combined I was like well now I guess I gotta spend five hours a day on this and here I am
0: (laughs) yeah Um, you know, I kind of have a similar story. I grew up, um, I grew up in Texas. I'm, i uh, I grew up in Texas. I don't live there anymore, but in a really, uh, conservative home, my parents were like grassroots political organizers, uh, grandfather's vets, father's a vet. And, um, you know, I, uh, so I was super involved, you know, super interested in politics and around like 2012 ish, 11, 12, I got so disillusioned, kind of like what you just said, pessimistic, like there's just no, ch- there's no, ch- there's no, there's no choices that we have. There's no options that we have. And I'm just, I'm over it. Like I don't even want to pay attention cause it just kind of makes me mad. And then when you really, when I understood Bitcoin and what it really has and what it can do all of a sudden, like you, I'm optimistic. Now we actually have a tool. And so exactly. it's like, I think we have a fighting chance now. And so like I kind of was the same thing. It's like, well, I just want to try and push this information as much as we can. Uh, because, because now we have an option, we have a tool. Um, I like that. Uh, I would say, as far as changing the way you think, um, I one one thing that I've noticed is that it's, it's super interesting to see what happens when you have a deflationary currency and what your spending thoughts are like. Right, all of a sudden you're like, man, do I want to spend this money that could be I could park into Bitcoin and could be going up in value, or do I want to spend it on something that's pointless and probably you know? And you start to really think about value differently
1: yeah i mean people people say like that's uh uh you know it stops you from spending bitcoin in particular but i i mean i think it 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 leads you to be more frugal in general because even with my you know my paycheck is in fiat even with my u s d like if i spend that then it's money that's not going into bitcoin right so you just yeah, it, it makes you, it makes you question, you know, short-term thinking versus long-term thinking very much so.
0: Now that's, that's a Keynesian argument, right? That says, well, that's bad. We right. if we have to encourage spending. Uh, so there's a whole different train of thought or school of thought. I should say that people have to get into that. We shouldn't always spend, right? We should save. And <laughs> that can be a whole nother topic on its own. Uh, but it is interesting. And I think even like you said, with the generation and and, uh, being optimistic, it's encouraging for me to see a whole new group of people get into Bitcoin for whatever reason, the tech or even just the money. But then like you've done, right, where you just dig in on the research and you start going down these rabbit holes and it's created this whole awareness, like even the word fiat, right, wasn't even really used that long ago.
1: Right. It was a car.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it's a car yeah so uh now you know I love seeing this education and stuff like that coming out. that's really cool so um, what I really want to talk to you about today was just the privacy piece um, you know I think it's it's you have to kind of get into the philosophy aspect a little bit, but privacy is super important um I agree, and obviously you do as well. A lot of people think that bitcoin is private and uh, you know, it's one thing the talking heads talk about, which is why it's bad, right? People hide all these things. It's for drug dealers, blah, blah, blah. Uh, tell me how you view
1: privacy a little bit and why that's important for us. So, um, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of what has shaped my thinking in regards to privacy is, was the Snowden revelations. I mean, what Snowden brought to us was the thing of conspiracy theories. Um, to have you know, massive corporations around the world basically complicit with government uh, spy operations on their own citizens as well, right? Um, so up until that point, I mean, I, I think when you start to think about privacy, you have to think about who's collecting the information. How are they using the information, right? So in a lot of these situations, if you trust the, the people collecting the information, there might not be many negative effects. Um, the Snowden revelation showed us that that we can't trust the people collecting those informa- this information. We can't c- trust, you know, uh, it, at least like pre-Snowden, you thought like Google was fighting on your side, Apple, Apple was fighting on your side, Yahoo, all of them. You thought they were all fighting on your side. And even if they were collecting the information, they were, you know, it wasn't part of a, like a massive government surveillance operation. Um, you know, you could go, obviously, so it's not great that you know Google does targeted ads to you and all this other stuff. That's a major privacy issue, as it is. But when you start aggregating all this information together, you start to really be able to map people and and see how they operate and how they think on the on a daily basis. Um, and 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 when you when you take that in aggregate, it really becomes a, a super powerful tool to to control large amounts of people. Um, you can quell dissent. You know, you can stop protests on, on just on a granular level to stop protests, but you can quell all types of dissent. I mean, I, we look in China and we, we see on uh, WeChat, their, their number one chat app where everyone communicates like you just can't say certain words. You can't even communicate between each other. That's like a step even before protests. Um, so so it really comes down to. Um, or do you want to be a free person or not? Because if, you're, if, if you give up your privacy, you're no longer a free person in today's age because that information can be used against you at any time. They might not use it against you now. They might not use it against you in five years. They may never use it against you, but they could at any moment decide to use it against you.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I love what Snowden said. He had a quote that really caught my eye and I think about it a lot, which is um, those who say they don't have, need a right to privacy because they have nothing to hide it's like saying you don't need freedom of speech because you have nothing to say. And I think, um, like what you said, maybe they'll never use it against you. I think they will. So, you know, what we've seen, and what we've seen is that we continue to have this division, right? And, and people are more polarized than ever. And so I think no matter which side you're on, pro-life or pro-choice or Democrat or Republican or whatever, it doesn't matter which side you're on, there's going to be somebody on the opposite side. Man, so there's always somebody who's going to want to discriminate you against that because of one of your decisions. And and, and then, may, you know, especially now with it being stored forever, something that you may have done in the past could could be there forever.
1: Yeah, let's say you piss someone off that's in power 10 years down the line. They can just pull up all your text messages that you've ever sent. Yeah. And they can just pick it to pieces, you know. Maybe there's some little – there's so many intricate laws. I mean, in America, but think about it worldwide. But they can just pick up something be like, you know – that was illegal. You did that wrong. Let me throw you in jail. You know, blackmail, all types of blackmail. People don't think like porn habits, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. And what happens is, is, uh,
0: you know, when I start to worry that people are going to be listening and watching, then I start censoring myself, what I say. And then when I start censoring myself, what I say, then I start censoring myself, what I think. And when I start to censor my thoughts, then creativity dies. And that's a massive problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's very intertwined with free speech, I would say. Because, I mean, without privacy, it's really hard to have, like, it's pretty much impossible to have free speech. Yeah. So, it seems like it's under attack. We see, um,
0: you know, in Hong Kong, they've been having these protests, which you mentioned. uh, I I saw you tweet, I think, today or yesterday about these kids being spied on at school, the China social credit system. So, do you feel that this is, like, it's getting to be a bigger and bigger problem now? I guess survey or
1: technology helps that? Yeah, I mean, I think we're, I, just to put my pessimistic hat on again, I mean, I think we're kind of, we're kind of screwed, uh, uh, in terms of the like encroaching surveillance state. I mean, it's here, uh, we can push back. Um, we can use tools that'll help us. Uh, we have like the rise of like the encrypted messengers, which is really good. Uh, which we saw basically the onus was basically the Snowden revelations, but now we have like signal, um, you know, WhatsApp added encryption, who even knows if that's legit or not. Um, you got like telegram key We have, we have some, we have more tools. I mean, look at iMessage. iMessage is, is, an, is the number one messaging app in America. I'm pretty sure it's got full encryption on it. Um, or does the U S government able to see it possibly, right. but like at least everyone else can see it. Um, so there, there's some glimmers of hope there, um, But the stuff like the facial tracking and um, traditional payments tracking, I mean, I think we might have already lost that battle. Uh, I mean, what you were talking about with the schools is, is like classic, um, classic government and like corporation playbook uh, where you basically, the parents are scared of school shooters, right? So you play on that fear and then you go completely overboard and you install facial recognition throughout the whole school. You map all the kids, and you're able to see where they move, who they talk to, Um, if they have have school-issued computers, you track all their communications on the computers. And and that's what we saw on a larger scale with the Patriot Act after September 11th, right? So you have September 11th, you put a bill up, that just destroys everyone's uh, rights, and you just call it the Patriot Act because everyone's scared as hell.
0: Yeah, that's the best way to get someone to give up their rights is to scare them, and I think – Maybe the quote isn't. They can't really tell who said it, but I think Jefferson or, or Frank, Benjamin Franklin said, "Right, the, those who are willing to give up uh, freedom for privacy deserve neither." You know, some, something to that regard, and and so people are willing to give that up because they're scared and they want protection. But he says they they deserve neither, and, and that's ultimately what you get. You don't get protection or privacy or
1: freedom. Um, yeah, facial yeah, recognition isn't the facial recognition in schools is not going to stop school shootings. No, like, and I if don't, you look-
0: if you look back, even, you know, the, the overreach that we have at the airports, I mean, if you've to fly out of LAX takes three hours, you know, and it's like, none of that, what they did would have stopped that, you know, whatever happened on nine 11. So, um, I agree with you on that. Yeah.
1: yeah they literally, they solved the vulnerability of nine 11 by reinforcing the cockpit doors and telling the pilots they weren't allowed to go into the, the cabin if something happened. Like that solved it. That's all they had to do. You couldn't get into the cockpit. No yeah. one could. No. No one could take over the plane and fly into a building. That solved it. Everything else is just security theater designed to, you know, erode our civil liberties. And also, I think it's even it's even more sinister than that because it, it kind of um, it like builds in this default that people get used to that that you know they, they go to the they go to the airport and they're used to just having no rights whatsoever just getting completely searched zero like so they're like they're setting us up they're, they started adding facial recognition in for like check-ins and stuff a lot of the airlines yep um i, I M- marty says this a lot on our podcast that, that the airports in america are like very much a testing ground i that we, that's what we think is very much a testing ground to uh to erode our privacy and our, our liberties further yeah
0: it's definitely a desensitization, like you said, right? We're getting used to it, and I mean, you have no rights. I mean, you—if you mess up, even standing in line—I mean, they have the right to, you know, who knows what they're going to do with you there. But I think, as you said, you know, it's—it's—it it's, is—it <clears throat> is easy to be a pessimist to see this, uh, you know, encroachment or this continual growth in that. Um, I'm kind of a—I'm uh, kind of starting to think a little bit optimistically, and I want to see what you think about this. So. Um, you did mention that, you know, we do kind of have this rise of encryption apps, which is pretty cool. Um, I think it's been kind of a perfect storm because on one hand you have people today who think they don't need privacy and they're willing to give up their privacy for freedom. So people don't care about it. And at the same time we have technology making it easier. So it's like this perfect storm to make it worse. But at the same time that the same technology is also giving us a way out. So you talked about messengers and messenger apps and whatnot, but what I'm starting to see is I think really the big piece was this Facebook scandal, this data scandal and people starting to realize like, holy crap, my data is being compromised. Uh, We have all these data breaches and whatnot. And I'm almost wondering, I'm thinking that we might start seeing big corporations. We've already seen Microsoft jumping in to try to offer privacy back And maybe they, maybe that might be a competitive edge. Maybe we'll start to see big corporations start to compete on that and
1: really help push that narrative. What do you think about that? I mean, we've seen it, uh, Apple kind of stumbled into it, but they've, uh, they've solidified it and made it like a key pillar of their marketing, uh, the privacy angle, which is good to see. Um, you know, I, as you said, Microsoft is also pivoting to be more privacy focused. Um, I, I like to see that. I think the market is demanding it. it comes down to the Snowden revelations again, though. Do we trust those people? Is there any way to verify it? There's no way to verify it. Um, so, because we're talking about, you know, we're talking about closed source software here, where you can't, you can't even look at the source code. We don't know what's going on.
0: Well, if we see like what Microsoft did, right, with Ion putting it on a block on the on the Bitcoin blockchain, maybe. Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I. It comes down to trust. I think they're all complicit. They can all get pushed behind back, back backrooms and just forced with legal uh you know legal ramifications. Uh the, the thing is, um I do agree that right now more people care about privacy than they've ever that I've that ever cared about in the history of the world. I mean, partly because we have more people in general, but yeah. it's it's trending up, right? And as we put more information online, there will be more leaks, there'll be more compromises, there'll be more people that directly get their civil liberties stepped on. Um, and people will wake up one at a time, you know, but the, the question is, well, when, when they do wake up, is it going to be too late at that point? Right. We have to make sure that, that we don't, you know, just completely fall off the cliff before that.
0: Yeah. And I think, so we'll, you know, we'll transition into Bitcoin, um, because that's the big piece. And I, I really believe that, you know, Bitcoin is, you know, is a lot of things. Um, I think a lot of us believe it can be a new, you know, monetary base layer, but I think it almost solves every problem. So, for example, if the government didn't have unlimited spending, if the government didn't have unlimited spending, they probably wouldn't have unlimited overreach in technology either, right? So if we could limit their spending, we could limit their overreach at the same time. So maybe it helps that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it all goes hand in hand, right? Uh, I mean, when you, when you start to talk about things like uh, censorship resistance, um, in terms of Bitcoin, I mean, you need to have the, the, the supply needs to be transparent. You need to have uh, a known monetary policy, which in Bitcoin's case is very simple. It's just fixed. Um, and, and because otherwise, like, I think censorship comes in uh, into play as well with, with um, inflation or something like that. If they're able to inflate the supply, if they're able to do all this other stuff. And if you don't have a native token, then we can't use this technology to transfer value in the first place, right? Because then, you know, and all these stuff that like, oh, we'll create a token that's like backed by gold or something like that. You need to have a company that has like a warehouse that's filled with gold and you have to trust them that they're saying that there's actually gold in the warehouse or whatever.
0: Right. right. So that requires trust, which which Bitcoin doesn't. So, we have Bitcoin, and it can be a lot of things. I think we can talk about it today in in the sense of privacy. And so, you know, it's one it's one thing to have like your your web surfing information taken <laughs> when you think about privacy, or your travel information taken. But when you get access to the financial data, that's got to be the most private of all. And so, that's essentially what is potentially, You know, it's at risk here, right? Where we go into a completely digital currency. Um, and then they have access to all the financial records. And uh, Bitcoin is not really as private as people think. Do um, you want to maybe just explain that for a minute?
1: I mean, I would say, I would say they already have all that information. Um, or like our, our current system is like pretty much digital as it is to begin yeah. with. It's all being tracked. It's all not just by the government, which is absolutely tracking it. You know, you do any kind of thing that. When you go into a bank, when I go into a bank, I don't feel like a client. I feel like a criminal. I feel yeah. like they're just constantly looking at me trying to figure out, like, what am I doing with my money? Should I report them to the government? Should I do this? Should I do that? Um, and then you have the corporations that track you. All the credit card companies are tracking you, like the discount sites, all this stuff. They're all tracking your payments. Um, and, yeah, and, and, and Bitcoin is, a, is, is hope among all of that mess. Now Bitcoin as it stands, if you just use it naturally, it's not private at all. I mean, it kind of, I mean, I, I guess it's a it's a step improvement in some ways. It's and it's somewhat anonymous in some ways. Because if you if you get if I like give you cash and you pay me Bitcoin, then you're the only person who knows that address is mine, right? Then I can pretty much spend it anonymously. But you know what I spend it on. So it's not fully Right. It's not fully private, but like no government entity or something else would be able to tell. And then unless unless,
0: unless they use these chain analysis type softwares where they start track. Now you give to somebody else who then it's tracked and they're KYC would and then they somehow piece all this together. Right. Right,
1: But the only person who knows I paid you cash for that Bitcoin is you. So but but then the step backwards is, is that all these transactions are being stored on this immutable ledger that could presumably, we were hoping, will last for hundreds of years where every transaction is shown on this ledger. So if you if you make a mistake in the future where somehow you get connected to a line of transactions, they might be able to go back and give you shit for things you did 10 years in the past, 15 years in the past, use that to, to make judgments against you, persecute you, uh, seize your Bitcoin, seize your wealth, do all this other stuff. Um, so it's, it's a really tricky situation, um, that doesn't have a perfect solution. Cause as we said earlier, the, the fact that the, that the ledger is transparent is also a major benefit. Um, yeah, but there are, but there are starting to be some options and that's where really
0: where I want to get into. And I know you, you kind of talk about on Twitter, um, you know, wasabi Wednesdays, you talk about that. So there's, there's an option with wasabi. I know there's a couple other options that are out there as well. Um, maybe you can just kind of tell us what the Wasabi Wednesday is and how that can help
1: people um, with some of that privacy. Right. So Wasabi is an implementation is a, is a piece of software that runs on your computer that implements, uh, something they're calling Chomian CoinJoin, uh, which is CoinJoin, which is a, um, I think was developed by Greg Maxwell, uh, is, is, is basically the idea is that you can, in a trust minimized fashion, you can combine your coins with a bunch of other people. So like, let's say we all put in $100, like 10 of us, and then the $100 bills go to different people, right? So you can't tell, you know what one of 10 got it, but you don't know who, who of the 10 got which one. Right. Um, so it breaks that trail of transactions that's in the ledger that shows transactions, 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 transactions. Now, the issue here is if you only do it with 10 people, then it doesn't really help you that much, right? Because you, you know it's one of 10. So you got to do it with more people. Um, which is one of the reasons why I've been pushing wasabi so hard is because it doesn't really work well. And in, in, unless we, the more people we get, the better it works, the faster it works. Um, and it's still not a silver bullet because you have um, all it takes is the problem with privacy is that all it takes is like one or two mistakes and you can just, Everything could just go get thrown out the window. So it takes a lot of education. A lot of there's a lot of nuance, um, and I've been trying to educate as best as possible. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it it's it's not Wasabi is has coin join is not a new idea. Wasabi has made it easier than ever to do it in a pretty private fashion. Um, you know, they, it requires a central server, their implementation to coordinate the round where everyone combines, but the central server can't take your money and it all runs through TOR. So the central server can not identify you individually on, on whose output and whose input. Um, you know, a lot of centralized mixing services. That was the issue is that the, the centralized server could, you were trusting the centralized server. No one else could tell where your transactions were going as long as that centralized server was actually being honest and and not doing it and they that those centralized servers can take your money with wasabi they can not take your money um and and they it's pretty hard for them to tell who you are because it all runs through tor yeah. um so we need to get more people to use it but but it's it's not something you can do after the fact like you have to basically not only do you have to coin join now before you send other transactions you have to keep on You're going to have to keep on mixing like you're going to have to keep on coin joining in the future otherwise um like transactions will get linked to you again if you send like if you put a donation address up uh for this podcast and you say you know send me bitcoin on mark to this address if you like the pod um that address now is connected to you and any transactions to and from that address could presumably be yours there's a safe assumption to be made there that they're yours if you then send that to your main wallet or something and we we all know how much bitcoin you have in that main wallet
0: yeah. so
1: you just have to constantly be doing coin joins um i guess with lightning there's there's potential there to reduce the need to remix but it's yeah. yet to be fully seen how that what those implications will be
0: and i know there's also like samurai wallet now has their whirlpool and i saw like they have like uh, they've, they've made it seems like it's pretty easy like with the new app that they have and um, you can stack it on like the
1: nodal lid, a lid or whatever. Um, so well, it'll be samurai will be much easier. They, they're in beta right now. So it requires software that you run on your computer, which is what wasabi requires too. Right. Um, but in the future in samurai wallet, you'll be able to just open your phone, click, start mixing, and it'll just, it'll just handle it for you. Um, so, in, so in that, I mean, theory that
0: the way it should work is every time I receive Bitcoin, it would be mixed. And before I send it, I mix it. So it's yeah. like in, in and out, right?
1: Yeah, just constantly you just have to constantly be mixing. And like for your cold storage, like you would have to do a situation where any any transactions you send into cold storage have to go through coinjoin before they get to your cold storage and then when they come out, they should go through coinjoin again otherwise on the on the outward uh, oh they, really uh, so both like if for your cold storage, you should insulate it with joint on both sides. If you if you're adding to it or if you're removing removing from it. Yeah.
0: Now, I've been interested in this because, um, you know, they use this word fungibility, which means, you know, one Bitcoin should be equal and it should be equally tradable um, like a dollar is. And, you know, something crazy like, I don't know, 90% of dollars have cocaine on them or whatever, but like nobody seems to care about that. But supposedly a Bitcoin becomes tainted. And I think (coughs) Chainalysis and other firms actually like kind of grade Bitcoins and they could say these Bitcoins aren't as good as other Bitcoins. And that messes up the fungibility. So, um, in order to kind of prevent that or preserve this fungibility where all Bitcoins are equal, then we kind of need everybody to participate, as you're saying, right? So then if everybody were to mix their transactions, then all the history gets erased, and then all Bitcoins could be equal again?
1: I mean, I think there's like a there's like a critical mass number. It doesn't have to be like everybody. Um, if there's like a critical mass and we have, you know... 40% of Bitcoin in circulation or something have a history of CoinJoin at some point, right? Uh, you know, because the main argument ag- against the fungibility, the, the main argument with fungibility is concerned is that um, if, if you send Bitcoin right now to an exchange and that, ex- and that Bitcoin has a history of, let's say, like a dark market or something, maybe you didn't even use a dark market. Maybe someone who had Bitcoin, five people down the road, used it for a dark market. You got tipped for your podcast, and now you have some dark market Bitcoin, and you send that to Coinbase, right? Coinbase runs chain analysis on it. They say this is a Silk Road Bitcoin. They freeze your account, right? That's an issue. We can't. Yeah. That's that. That destroys Bitcoin as a useful money.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. And, and because for you, imagine one of the beauties of Bitcoin is that it reduces friction in terms of exchanging exchanging money and goods. If you have to deal with that, there's so much additional friction there. I mean, you have to literally chain analysis all your tips as you, as you bring them in. You got to do that. Do, do we see that happening today? Yeah. I mean, they, they're doing it right now if there's like an obvious connection. Um, so, so if you use CoinJoin in between there they, it, and, and you do it effective, you do it enough rounds, you're patient about it, you actually like cross your T's and stuff and you send it, there's no way for them to tell where that Bitcoin came from. So if we have like forty percent of Bitcoin users, but forty percent of Bitcoin transactions are running through CoinJoin, um, it'll become ridiculously hard for them to enforce. And so, so then, so then the issue there is, what happens if they say, well, we'll just blacklist anything that is CoinJoin?
0: Right. right? That's the question I was going to ask.
1: Right. So how does that ban look like? If if are you saying that it just immediately used CoinJoin? Are you saying that you know well, what? What if I just send it? send the bitcoin back to myself to a bunch of different addresses and like do like six hops and the coin join happened you know seven transactions ago it wasn't a recent transaction did i do the coin join did you do the coin like who who did that coin join do i have to so once we hit a certain threshold there um i i think those concerns really go out the window because you have um it'll be so easy to just move into coin join and even if the exchange says that, you know, we're not going to take an immediate coins and you just put a couple hops in there and then you send it on. Um, that should destroy, should neuter those those fungibility concerns. Um, and I think I think from the exchanges point of view or the services point of view or the podcast host's point of view receiving Bitcoin, like I would rather receive bitcoin where i couldn't tell where it came from why do i want the liability of knowing exactly where that bitcoin's been where it's going like why do i want to know that that just yeah. puts me bigger that just gives me a bigger issue so I, was, think, I, think, one, yeah. I think i think services and you know merchants and stuff will will encourage it i think they'll prefer to receive coins that have gone through CoinJoin.
0: That was one thing I heard at the Bitcoin conference um, a couple weeks ago is they said kind of it's it's almost like our responsibility to kind of to, to remove that history, right? To make sure that they can only see one transaction back. And if they could only ever see one transaction back, then it gives us back to that digital cash, which is basically what cash is. And, you know, the argument, I mean, I whatever, their argument about like money laundering, I guess, is is... Like somewhat relevant, I suppose. But I mean, if you think about it, like banks have been fined hundreds of billions of dollars for money laundering. All the money that we use has been laundered at one point, probably right, or, or high probability. Um, and there's just no reason why I should have to carry that, uh, that, that around. So just because they can, I mean, it's, it's kind of ridiculous.
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, the number one tool for money laundering is the US dollar. But like yeah. no one uh, argue i mean I guess people have one of the reasons I'm bullish on Bitcoin is because people have been arguing the efficacy of, of cash they don't want they want to get rid of cash um, yeah so so we're going to need a digital equivalent but um yeah i i i, I mean I, I think the money laundering argument is a is a weak argument, and it is one usually leveled by uh, people that trust the state because basically i mean the definition of money laundering is like. Doing with your money something that your government doesn't want you to do with your money.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right. Now um, we have a couple other options. Just real quick, you had mentioned about lightning. I know uh, lightning kind of you can do some kind of private, you know, peer-to-peer transactions. I think Blockstream now, with their green, they have like confidential transactions or whatever. So you think that also helps? So like, I could mix them, then I have them offline, then you and I can uh, do confidential transactions back and forth, and that kind of mixes it up even more.
1: Yeah, that's what, what I'm saying is, like, imagine, like, just trying to imagine, like, what a coin join ban could look like, right? Like, I, I, I don't see how you can enforce it. Because, like, imagine you go coin join and then you go into liquid, the liquid side chain, then you send a couple transactions. They have confidential transactions. So the, the balances are blocked, but not to and from who's going to where. And then you pull out of liquid. Now, all of a sudden, your, your Bitcoin has a history of liquid. That doesn't have a history. You got different Bitcoin than the CoinJoin. Well, like how do you, it's, or like you go into lightning, you you fund a lightning channel, you send some lightning payments, you close up the lightning channel. Like, is that a CoinJoin transaction now? Like it gets really, it turns into basically like if they wanted to ban CoinJoin, they're banning Bitcoin self-custody altogether. You can't withdraw Bitcoin. You can't deposit Bitcoin. It's just a number in your TD Ameritrade account. And then, I mean, at that point, we have bigger, we have bigger issues.
0: Yeah. And I think they are they already kind of want to do that, right? Even with this new FATF deal where they want to like, you have to send the transaction details and whatnot. I think um, I love this, you know, the statement that says though, um, you know, it, the, your government banning it is even more reason why you want it or need it, right? So um, they yeah. almost just kind of push that use case. And really the whole argument is, is kind of ridiculous anyway, where, okay, it pushes terrorism and it pushes drugs. Well, should drugs even be legal? I mean, illegal anyway, who are you to tell me what I can and cannot put in my body? Like, so that's, that's a, that's a whole different argument and terrorism. I mean, come on, who's the largest supplier of terrorism? Is my little transactions actually helping terrorism? And <laughs> Those yeah, are a whole I mean, other topics as well. The,
1: the number one tool for terrorists is us dollars. Once yeah. again, you know, we come back to it. I do think to be completely frank, like I think we will see a terrorist attack in like, in the future at some point, and they will say they funded it with Bitcoin and they will use it to crack down on Bitcoin. Just- I, I, bet you, I bet you the number
0: one tool for terrorism is not dollars. I bet you it's mobile phones.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, that too, they love mobile phones. They're- I,
0: bet they're using, I bet they're using cars too. I bet cars is probably a big tool they use. I mean, come on, right? Like they exactly. probably use airplanes. I bet airplanes are a big tools that terrorism uses. I mean, we could just go on and on and on, you know?
1: I mean, they were, they were talking, I remember they were the, the recent European attacks that were being leveled. They used it to try and fight encryption and say that you can't use encrypted chat apps. And like all the, all the terrorists on the ground, they were using burner phones. They were using no encryption whatsoever. They were just using burner phones.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, we can go on and on and on, but we'll go ahead and wrap it up. I know we're getting long here. So <laughs> I know you've put out a bunch of good resources for people that want to get more into, into this and the privacy. Um, and maybe I'll link to some of those in the show notes for everybody. Um, I don't know if, you could just kind of recap really quickly, maybe like a couple things that you think. So, you know, coin join with Wasabi or, or uh, Samurai, having your own node, using a Tor browser. I mean, just a couple of things real quick.
1: Okay, let's try and we'll try and distill it. Well, let's try. So I, I think right now, the best, simplest, and like the best bang for your buck in terms of simple to uh, private, uh, is is you install Wasabi on your computer, you use that from now on to connect to your hardware wallet. It supports the top three hardware wallets, Coldcard, Ledger, and Trezor. Um, so one of the issues when people connect to their hardware wallet, they don't realize if they, if they use the Trezor app or they use the Ledger app, they're sending all their transactions and data through Ledger and Trezor servers. So I, I, have no, I have no reason to believe that they're collecting that information and using it against us, but they could presumably. You have to trust them. So you connect through Wasabi, to with your hardware wallet even in light mode if you're not running your own node it's way more private and even better is if you run your own node um wasabi automatically connects to that um if you're running it on the same computer and if you're running it on a different computer you can connect it to um you can connect it to your wasabi and uh the the beauty there is is you get sovereignty benefits because you're verifying all your transactions yourself and it's additional privacy because um just, just the way you're getting all the block data, you're getting all the transaction data, not just your own specific transaction. So it gives you some additional privacy. Um, and then mix in within Wasabi, it's really, really easy to mix your coins. In Wasabi, you just queue them up for CoinJoin, and um, and just mix those around. You know, I, the thing is, like, don't be scared of it because even if you fuck it up, it's like way better. You know, don't like just jump in and use it for like life and death situations without properly uh learning about it but if if you're just like a normal person that just wants to reclaim your privacy back it's a net benefit there's there's no there's no situation where you use wasabi and you lose more privacy than you've had before, right? And really so like, the
0: point I want everyone to pick up is not just about your privacy, it's for the whole ecosystem. So um, let's not be so selfish where everyone, you know, we're always thinking about ourselves, but think about the ecosystem as a whole. And, and, and by doing these things, you're helping everybody. You're helping the Bitcoin community.
1: Yeah, the more people that use it, the better it gets, the faster it gets, the harder it is for them to enforce any kind of uh, coin joint bans or stuff like that. So it's really important
0: yeah awesome well thanks for that overview um, I'll find some of your resources and link to those in the show notes for everybody that wants to know more about that um, but yeah good stuff about privacy uh, hopefully everybody enjoyed that I'll go ahead and link to uh, Matt's stuff and so you can follow him he talks a lot about these and, and links to, to more resources
1: and stuff like that um, so we'll call it with that uh, thanks for joining thanks thanks very much Mark happy to be here
0: Hey, if you like this episode of the Market Disruptors podcast, please help us take this to the top of the podcast charts. Just please do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Taking 15 seconds to just leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us reach more people and disrupt more markets. I really appreciate you listening, and I'll see you next time on the Market Disruptors podcast.